Strangers, respectable women invaded bars, masked matrons peeked into houses of ill repute on Basin Street. But in 1919, Rex announced that this year he would not leave his palace in Araby, the blessed, to descend upon New Orleans. Celebrations had been canceled in 1918 because of the war. Such frivolity didn't seem quite right, with American boys dying in French mud. The thousands who enjoyed the pageants and parades and costumes swallowed their disappointment and looked forward to the resumption of festivities at the end of the war. March 1919, however, just four months after the end of a conflict that left over 116,000 Americans dead, still seemed too soon. The celebration of Carnival was scaled back. A few modest parades were planned, private masked balls were permitted, but the times Picayune tried to lower expectations— there will be no gorgeous pageants to fill the streets with a blaze of color and light. Apparently no one checked with the people of New Orleans. By ten on the morning of Mardi Gras, the spirit of Carnival had overwhelmed the city father's reluctance and spontaneously impelled thousands of masked merrymakers into the streets. Costumed in bright silks, satins, and velvets, Revelers swaggered up and down the banquettes, hung out of slick new automobiles, and hitched rides on horse-drawn wagons. The twang of banjos and the reedy hum of clarinets floated through the air. A truck carrying a calliope pushed its way through the crowds, adding its steam-driven whistles to the general din. Elves, gnomes, hula dancers, Spanish dons, Cherokee warriors, and harem beauties made their way down St. Charles Avenue. Cross-dressing was surprisingly popular, with young women uniformed as soldiers competing for attention with grown men made up as Japanese geishas. No modest, even somber, carnival was this. By midday, any pretense that the day was in any way normal had vanished. The city was one big party. Businesses closed. Housewives found themselves abandoned by household help who had joined the masked throngs. Even the weather cooperated, an approving sun driving out threatening clouds. Frank Giordano and his girlfriend, Josie Sparra, joined the flood of humanity that darkened the central business district, flooding along with the crowd down Canal Street, laughing at the masked sprites, the satin-clad cavaliers, the women dressed as redbirds. They tried to listen to the primitive jazz band at the corner of St. Charles and Canal, heroically attempting to make its ragtime heard over the cacophony of the crowd. They gaped at the red devils and harlequins driving delivery wagons— They ate hot dogs on Canal Street from a vendor hawking them from the back of his wagon. All day and into the night, they shared the streets with the happy crush of surging humanity. They also shared the streets with a more sinister companion. He too enjoyed the crowds and the masks and the music, but his was a malevolent spirit that threatened Frank and Josie and their future happiness. That night, that memorable Mardi Gras, Frank was a happy young man, ambitious and optimistic. An exemplary son of Sicilian immigrants, he worked hard and made big plans. At seventeen, he was already an insurance agent and engaged to Josie, a sweet local girl. He anticipated a flourishing American life, a happy family, a prosperous business. But three nights after Mardi Gras, Josie had a dream— She dreamed that evil was about to descend on the neighborhood. She was prescient. Frank's life was about to become a nightmare. Screams tore through the quiet Gretna neighborhood on an otherwise tranquil Sunday morning. 
Hazel Johnson, a young black woman, bolted out of the Cortemilia's combination residence and grocery, yelling for someone, anyone, to help. The Cortemilia's had been murdered. Frank Giordano was upstairs in bed when his twenty-year-old sister Lena's hysterical cries, Oh, Jesus! Oh, Jesus! Oh, Jesus! punctured his sleep. Panic-stricken, thinking something had happened to their mother, he tumbled down the stairs, dressing on the way. Facing his sister, shirt unbuttoned, shoes on without socks, he demanded, Lena, what's the trouble? Is it Mama? They're dead, she wept. Mr. Cortemilia, Mrs. Cortemilia, and the baby are dead. Dazed, he stared at her. Do you mean that? Yes, she insisted. Hazel Johnson came running out, hollering that they were dead. At that moment, he looked up to see Ella Kennedy, Hazel's aunt, who had accompanied her on her errand to the store, coming out of the alley that led to the back of the Cortemilia's place, screaming that the baby was dead. Still buckling his belt and buttoning his shirt.